Ah, race cars. Is there anything ever more quintessential to the concept of freedom? For some, they would say the motorcycle is the true epitome of individual freedom. But for a lot of people, getting into their first car and feeling that sense of the world getting wider, bigger, so that you, you can go explore as long as you have, say, a tank of gas, which for a lot of people is pretty fantastic. I remember my first car. Um, my first real car that I owned was a 91 Honda Civic, little four-speed hatchback, and it was great. By the way, my name is Will, and this is Talk is Cheap. So today's episode is about Gone in 60 Seconds, a car movie about stealing cars for money and the carnage that's left behind. I have to go on record and say, though, that I have not ever seen the original prior to selecting this set for an episode. So when I sat down and I watched the original Gone in 60 Seconds, which came out in 1974, by the way, um, I didn't know what I was going, what I, what to expect when I went into it. I was, okay, it's, they're going to steal cars. That's it. Little did I know that was about it. They were going to steal cars for money. There's, I have to give a lot of credit to the writer, director, producer, and star of this movie, um, a man by the name of H.B. Haliki, who was a stunt driver by trade until he got the idea to make his own car movie, and this is the result. It was made for a budget of about $150,000, which in 1974 was about $845,000 adjusted to our rate. And it went on to make $40 million off a $150,000 budget. $40 million. That's quite impressive. And I didn't believe these numbers at first. When I looked them up, I was like, there's, there's no way. There's no way. Now, after watching the film I watched, there's no way. So... I had to think about it. I had to think about what what made this movie worth that much. Why did moviegoers keep going back to it to the tune of $40 million? So the general outline of this film is the main character, Mandarin Pace, who goes by Adrian. Um, he's an insurance investigator who's also a car thief. He makes a deal where he has five days to steal 48 specific cars for $40,000 around the Los Angeles area. Pretty, pretty simple. The plot does not ask for much from anyone to get the story going. You, 48 cars, $400,000, go. So, that's that's what they do. He has this crew, um, and he's got a guy on the inside who's, I believe, an insurance adjuster or he's a cop of some sort, and he convinces him that, you know, you need to, to keep people off my back while I go and do this, and you'll get a cut of the profits. The, the movie shows a couple of really excellent things. As a car guy, I, I greatly appreciated this. It's not something you see often. Like, the opening camera angle of this film is 
inside the car. Like you see the steering wheel, you see his hands on the car and he's just driving down the road. He's driving rather quickly down the road, but he's just driving down the road. And it'll cut out to the car going down the road and then cut back into inside the car. And you do get a sense of feel, of the speed. And it's not like a smooth, flat, normal road. It is a bumpy, hilly, dippy road. So the car is bouncing up and down and it's kind of swerving from side to side. And he's just masterfully handling this. It doesn't give you any clue that he is that talented of a driver, but it gives you a sense of he's going fast. When you think of modern car movies like the Fast and the Furious franchise, you think of, you just see the car mostly the car or the, those quick cuts of them pushing the clutch in or pushing on the brake or pounding the gas pedal to the floor and shifting gears you don't really see the actor driving the car you see maybe what looks like the actor and he's got his steering wheel and all that the, the face shot but you don't see the actual person driving the car you, you're led to believe that Vin Diesel is actually driving that car this movie he's actually driving that car and he does it very well one of the things i can appreciate not only that that inside that cockpit feel is when he gets to his destination in the opening scene he's driving a 1970s car it's not anything fancy it's not special it's not tuned up but they didn't have anti-lock brakes so any hard braking he did would lock up the wheels that's a nice touch. That's that's something they could have just added it out, but as he pulls into a stop, it's er, 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 er. that's that's how you drive a car in those days. Not necessarily locking the brakes up, but you press too hard on the pedal, the brakes locked, the tires stopped moving, and you made screeching noises. For car nuts, we like screeching noises. So in his, as he's a, a car thief, he has this chop shop essentially and what they do is they take wrecked cars and they'll take the engine out they'll take the transmission out they'll take the vin number and all the stickers out of the wrecked car and then they'll go find a car that looks exactly like it same make model year and color and they'll put the the wrecked ids into this new car that they stole to remove any chance that the authorities could find them because as far as they're concerned, they have found the car that the VIN number matches all these details a car would have, like color, engine type, the odometer, all that stuff. And the car that was stolen is just poof, gone. It's a very smart way to steal cars and one that wouldn't work in today's era, but in this time period worked great. In this chop shop though, and I'm an, I'm an old school kind of guy. Old school kind of guy. I've been in old repair places, old junkyards, old rural areas. And if, if you're anything like, like me, and you, as a kid, you stared in wonder at these places and these guys doing this stuff, not stealing cars, but working on cars. One thing that always stood out was that every one of these places had pictures of naked women on the wall. And this movie is no different. They have an entire wall of this chop shop that is just pinup girls. Back when, back when men appreciated the female form 
and women wanted to be appreciated. They were plastered all over the wall. That's a discussion for another time, but it's a nice, it's an homage to an earlier, simpler time, in my opinion. That said, this movie is very, very much 70s. From the hair to the mustaches, the porn mustaches, by the way, to the clothes, to the, the cars, to everything. It is, it, drip, it reeks of the 70s. And maybe not necessarily in a good light. Some of the fashion back then, it's, you just want to gouge your fucking eyes out. So he, he makes this deal. He's going to steal 48 cars. He's got $400,000 on the line. He's got five days to do it. There is no extraneous nonsense. At least in the beginning, at least for the plot. There's a couple of times where I feel the film does go off the rails, and I'll get to those. But this setup for this is simple. It's elegantly simple. Maybe not, you know, smooth like ballroom dancing smooth, but it is a simple, easy to understand, easy to digest concept. Ideally, to get you to just look at the cars. And there are a lot of really nice cars in this. Old school Ferraris, uh, a Manta. If you've ever heard of one of those, it's it's a supercar essentially. And Eleanor, and that's Eleanor is a key figure in this in this movie. And most people have heard of the name Eleanor in reference to a car. The first act is finding all these cars, and they st slowly start to steal them. As the list gets tighter and tighter, they get into stealing Eleanor which is a 1971 Ford Mustang soft or sports roof that was redressed as a 1973 Ford Mustang. So when they're out scouting these cars, re even at the beginning of the movie, they see one, exactly the one they want, but they see it and they want to have it. The catch is the car has to be insured. That's part of his insurance adjustment job is to cover those. He doesn't steal cars that aren't insured. Sort of like a Robin Hood that robs from the rich and the rich can just afford it because the car will be replaced. So the original, the first Eleanor he sees isn't something he can get his hands on. So he scouts out a few others and you're led to believe that there's only two of them in the city. Led to believe. In that city. Keep that in mind. The second act of this movie does drag a lot. A lot. For me, I was bored. I was I was really bored. They're taking cars, cool. They're having their little quarrels as they try to figure stuff out. There's this whole, they find a car that's got drugs in it and they have a fight about it. The cops show up to investigate because they think some car thefts are going on. And there's that fake tension of, will the cops find the car with the drugs? But then they get rid of the car and burn it and it's all, it's unnecessary fluff, really. Um, it's just to kind of let you know that 70s was the drug area and drug era and most cars that were nefariously appearanced were probably hiding drugs and you needed to be careful of who you stole cars from. The obvious betrayal with the, the friend in law enforcement is obvious. You see it coming from a mile away. In fact, the movie sets it up so painfully evident that you're like, yep, he's gonna betray. Because the main character goes to New York City to his friend's wedding and tells his friend at his wedding, you need to cancel your honeymoon because I have this job we need to do. 
if that doesn't set up, there's already tension in it. And the family gets together because they're all part of this, this close-knit little family. And the main character says, if he isn't on a plane tonight, I want him out of this family. Because apparently the main character's got all this the sway with the other family members so that obvious tension is there and when he gets off the plane you can you can see it the whole group is kind of wary and he he's looking around and he the camera cuts to him specifically as he kind of eyeballs the crew as they go about stealing cars like yeah I'm, I'm gonna fucking betray you like it's it's gonna happen just just wait for it with all of that they get all of the cars except one and this is where the movie picks up and it becomes sort of a sort of the movie that Haliki wanted to make. And I can see why. The car chase with Haliki getting Eleanor, this, the 1973 Mustang, and getting it to, I think it was the docks or something, for it to be sold off, was, it's 40 minutes long. It is a 40 minute car chase. And I had to look it up. It is the longest car chase on film, which is pretty impressive all things considered. It goes through six cities in the lower Los Angeles, California region and totals 93 other cars in the police attempt to catch him. Now, one of the things I do have to say about the chase, while the chase itself was exciting, there was a couple of times where I'm like, okay, dude, what the fuck are you doing? You're, you're stopped on this, this hill, you're waiting for the cops to come crash into you with their cars and then you just kind of back out of the way and they drive right into a fucking ravine or some shit that's some video game bullshit right there i get it i accept it but it's video game bullshit if you have the upper hand just have the upper hand and all of this chase in the middle of this is he stole a car that was owned by a radio dj the radio dj is the first one to get on the air that there's a car chase going on for some reason, but doesn't know that it's his car. And they have people that work for the radio agency going around interviewing pedestrians on, did you see the chase? What's going on? What do you know? In the middle of this 40 minute car chase. So while the chase itself is 40 minutes, you chop out all this extra bullshit where you're not watching the cars drive and it's not 40 minutes. It's probably closer to 35 or 30 minutes. I, I wasn't going to rewatch the film to start pinpointing exactly where they could start cutting out, but it was a bunch of unnecessary stuff that just added padding to an already expansive chasing. Even at 30 minutes or so, that is still expansive for 1970s cinema, and even car cinema in general. I know a lot of people want to look at like the movie Bullet with Steve McQueen and go, that was the best car chase they've ever seen. This chase and Gone in 60 Seconds is very impressive. The amount of driving that he does, the amount of skilled driving he does, as is real, he did that for real. Even to the point where there's one, and I had to look up the facts on this, there was one point where he gets pushed off of the expressway and into a light pole at like 100 miles an hour. He actually got injured in that crash and they had to stop production for him to go to the hospital and get medical treatment. They kept it in there because he, when he woke, got to the hospital and he was sedated and everything, the first thing he asked was, did we get it on camera? Because he's that dedicated, as a stunt driver, he's that dedicated to his craft that he knew it was going to look good. And he was willing to put himself at risk to make it look good. 
I doubt Steve McQueen did that. I know for sure that other people in car movies do not do that. They have stunt drivers that don't get any camera time or speaking lines because drive the car. That said, the car chase was still impressive. As, as far as my first viewing, that is an impressive car chase. What I liked at the end is how he escaped. He, he pulls this damaged, beat to shit, 1973 Ford Mustang into a car wash of all things. The movie doesn't tell you specifically if he intended this or not, but he pulls into this car wash, gets out of his car, tells the, the car wash clerk who's looking at this mangled piece of metal going, what do you want me to do with this boss? And he's just like, wash it. And he walks to the other side where the clean cars are coming out. And he cons this woman who has the exact same Mustang, the exact same Mustang, out of her car, saying that the manager needs to talk to her, and there was something wrong with her wash, and they were gonna run it through again. So she gets out of the car, she goes off to find the manager. He gets in this pristine car and drives away. Perfect condition car, drives away. So there's this massive manhunt for him, because he's disguised as an older gentleman with a gray coat and black slacks, and he's got a gray mustache and gray hair. And he starts peeling this stuff off because it's all a disguise. So when he rolls up to this police barricade where they're checking cars, and they look exactly, they look at this car and go, this is the car. They see this young guy with wavy brown hair, no mustache, dressed completely differently than the subject they're looking for. They, they hold him up at the, the roadblock. And on the radio, you hear the cops say, we got him, we got him. Well, they had arrested the car wash manager who happened to look like the car thief did with this mangled car that they've been chasing because he was smart enough to take the license plate off and just transfer it over and all that. Very, very smart way. But the movie doesn't tell you if it was planned. I like to believe that he did plan it. He knew this car was going to be hard. He knew the chase was going to happen and he had to plan an exit strategy. And his idea of an exit strategy was he was going to find someone to look that would have a car similar or at least have access to a car similar. He was going to disguise himself as a, a normal person you would see like the car wash manager, get in this chase so they believed that they were looking for this one guy and then he's going to rip off that disguise and walk away clean with the pristine car and $400,000 for a job well done. And he does. He gets away with it and the movie just ends. There's no bullshit. There's no what happened afterwards. He just, he gets away with it and the movie ends. Almost as if the movie respected your time. And it's only like an hour and 30 some minutes long. It is a very short film, but easy setup. A little drag in the middle, high octane, high action, final third act, and then movie's done. There you go. Goodbye. Thanks for watching. And they did. And they watched. And they went to the tune of $40 million, which adjusted to today's money with the current rate of inflation. It's $225 million for something that today would have cost about $850,000 to make. That is a massive massive return on investment. 
I don't think he went on to make any other movies, and this movie will go down in history as one of the best chase movies ever made, in my opinion, because that chase was so excellent. The rest of the film is totally fucking forgettable. The characters, I couldn't name a single one of them, what their, their actual character name was, much less the actors, totally forgettable. But that chasing scene, scene, plural, because it, he went through six cities, even got stuck in a car dealership and managed to get out because he was willing to do anything to get by. And the cops in this movie were stupid. Apparently, this was before spike strips were invented or before they learned they could just shoot tires out. I don't know. The, the chasing could have been over in 15 minutes if they got him pinned and started shooting out his tires. But Hollywood. So what did I think of it? Overall. Overall. Well, the for an original idea, it was well executed. The production value is fairly high. The licensing alone for some of those cars was probably outrageous. And there was probably a lot of caveats like, okay, you can drive these, but... You, we can show you getting into the car, but we cannot show you as an actor driving this car around. Like, they're not going to let a high-end Ferrari just away. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. They're worth more than the budget of this movie. Did I like it? Yes, I did. I did like it. Do I think it holds up into today's modern cinema? Um, eh? We'll we'll have to we'll go we'll come back to this when I do the second part of this episode, which is the 2000 remake of Gone in 60 Seconds, starring everyone's favorite crazy guy, Nicolas Cage. Ah, uh, Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage. What can be said about Nicolas Cage? Well, a lot can be said. But we're not here specifically to talk about him. I, we will get to him. Let's let's cover the movie first. The movie doesn't really show a lot. It, it's not really connected to the original. So as a remake, it is a true remake. The opening credits, which I don't really care for in most movies, is a series of opening credits, unless they're done really well. Like the opening credits to Seven, the opening credits to most movies don't really tell you a lot about the movie you're about to watch. All these opening credits do is tell you that you're supposed to feel inspired by this sense of family and moral righteousness. You get to see young pictures of Nick Cage, who de-aging technology wasn't that good at the time, and someone assuming to be his little brother. The, the film is essentially about... Nicholas Cage's character, whose name is Randall Memphis Reigns, again, no relation to the original, and how he's a retired car thief who is retired, like legitimately retired. He runs this go-kart station for little kids, which Nicholas Cage trying to give a speech to little kids about how to drive a car, to me, is just hilarious. Just hilarious. There's some something about this guy as an actor like, certain roles you wouldn't think of, like Con Air. And I know I'm getting off track, but real quick, talking about Nicolas Cage. Con Air was a movie that he is not a fit for. 
He's not. His fake-ass accent, which was terrible, the movie does not lend him to be an action star. He's a skinny, tiny guy. Like, he is not going to take on, you know, even John Malkovich, who's who's like, like that crazy good of an actor because he plays crazy so well. Nicolas Cage doesn't have that. I think he's trying to take notes because later on in his career he gets more crazy, a la Ghost Rider, but he just he seems out of place. And that's what this scene reminds you of, is Nick Cage seems out of place talking to children and giving them a pep talk. He's not creepy, he just feels out of place. He's a retired car thief, and his little brother, I don't even remember what his name is, that's how forgettable he is, is taking up the family business as a car thief. And he makes a deal with this vaguely European or Russian guy to steal 50 cars in three days for $200,000. And I know what you're thinking, because I thought it too, especially when rewatching this and nitpicking details, is you're already stealing more cars for less money. Some of the cars you're stealing are worth more than the money you're getting paid to steal them. Like the Porsche 1911 GTR that they steal in the opening is worth more than the $200,000 you were going to get paid for stealing 50 cars. The point is, the cars he's stealing are not worth the money he's getting paid. And, of course, the deal goes south. And vaguely, Middle Eastern Russian guy gets pissed off because it's making him look bad to his people that he can't deliver on this deal that he threatens to kill Nick Cage's brother. So Nick Cage's old buddy who's been working with the Russian and the little brother goes to Nick Cage and says, your brother's in trouble, we need you to come back. Nick Cage strikes a deal to complete the job. 50 cars, three days, $200,000, and the little brother gets to go free. Otherwise, he's gonna get crushed in a car compactor. Simple enough plot, yeah. I mean, it's a little extra layered, uh, and there's a few more layers to get added onto it. Like, there's currently an active police investigation going on because of these stolen cars, because it's the year 2000, and you can't just steal cars without somebody noticing. And they're not nearly as high-tech as swapping out VIN numbers or anything like that. They're just, we're going to take the car, we're going to deliver it somewhere, and it's going to go away on a cruise, on a container ship. We move forward in that we're stealing, in my opinion, cars more worth it, versus moving backwards as we're not as organized. Nick Cage makes this deal after pulling a gun on the Russian guy and having guns pulled on him and trying to be all big and bad. Nick Cage trying to be big and bad is just, it's adorable. It's adorable. He can't do it, which is why it's adorable. That's like, that's like a kitten trying to be scary. That's like Simba from The Lion King before he grew up trying out his first roar. That's Nick Cage trying to be scary. Anyway, we get to learn that this version of Eleanor, which is a 1967 Shelby GT500, also a Mustang, if you don't know anything about cars. And Shelby was, maybe you've heard of Shelby, the Shelby Cobra. Anyway, Shelby was a company that did professional grade upgrades and tunes to popular sports cars. They have a whole line of Shelby did this to Mustangs because Mustang was the everyman's car. That's what it was created for. When Shelby came along and said, okay, we're gonna make this better. They became really desirable 
pieces of equipment. And as a guy that plays car racing games, GT500s are, are desirable for their power. This car has a better connection, this version of Eleanor has a better connection to the main character as Nick Cage had tried to steal it twice before, a version of this car, and failed both times. So it's the one that got away for him. There's the same steal a car, it's got drugs in it, artificial tension because the cops show up and they're trying to hide the drugs, yada, 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 move on. Nick Cage has this brilliant idea with his, his old style crew, because he pulls a lot of them out of retirement, and with the help of his brother and his brother's crew, which is a bunch of young bucks who think they know shit, to steal all of these cars in one night. 12 hours to be exact, not 24. One night, 12 hours. Under the, the notion that if you get all of them in one night, by the time the police catch up to the fact that these cars are being stolen, they don't have time to react. If you're going to 50 different people who say, my car's been stolen, that eats a lot of time that you could have been used to track down car thieves. Stealing it over many days increases the likelihood of getting caught. It makes sense, but it's also really dumb. If only because if there is a hiccup in the plan, and there are hiccups in this plan, you don't have the time to adapt. Just saying. They steal 48 of the cars without fail, without problems in the time span. The last car, um, the, the young bucks get lost in suburbia and end up getting into sort of a police altercation where one of the, the young bucks gets shot through the window and they have to rush the guy to the hospital and deal with all that nonsense. And they deliver a damaged car, which the Russian doesn't really say anything about, surprisingly. And then we come to Eleanor. Nick Cage steals Eleanor from the same site that the first movie stole Eleanor from. There is the obligatory chase. I don't think I said that word right, but there is the chase. It is much shorter, it is much more compact, and far less damage is done to the car. I think because of the the clear classic nature of the vehicle and the fact that it could only get their hands on a few of them, they didn't really they didn't really beat it up. It was something that could have easily been repaired versus the 1973 Mustang that they that car was totaled. An insurance adjuster would have looked at that and said, that's fucking totaled. This car, there's a reverence to it. One that I appreciate. However, there is this impossible jump that Nick Cage does with this car over a tow truck ramp. You know those, those flatbed tow trucks where the, the bed comes down and tilts up? Well, he does this and he jumps off of it doing about 90 miles an hour. And when that car hits the asphalt, you can tell it is fucked. That car was fucked. But Hollywood being Hollywood, we just drive away. So Nick Cage delivers a damaged car past the time limit, 12 minutes past the time limit. And he has this, this typical Nick Cage quote that I want to read to you guys because it's, it's, 100% Nick Cage. He gets out of his car, Russian's like, well, you deliver, it's past your time, I don't want the car. 
And Nick Cage kind of kind of loses it. He's like, I just stole 50 cars in one night. I'm a little tired, a little wired, and I think I deserve a little appreciation. I cannot do a Nick Cage impression because I, my brain doesn't fail like that. But it's, it's that typical, like, I'm on the edge of I'll cut your face off, but I'm just reserved enough that I won't think about cutting your face off. Anyway, it leads to a chase, a fight, a gun battle, and the cops show up because they got tipped off. They all converge in this factory, this junkyard factory where they're smelting down, you know, scrap metal. And Nick Cage ends up saving the cop who had gotten cornered by the Russian and had a gun pulled on him. Nick Cage kills the Russian and the gun falls between him and the cop and the cop just kind of bends down and picks it up and Nick Cage just puts his hands up like this wasn't personal man I I killed the bad guy because I'm not a bad guy I did what I had to do for my family so the cop's like you put me in a moral dilemma here Randall that I should take you to jail because of all the mayhem you caused in the last 12 hours but you just saved my life and there is a certain honor in that. So, the cop lets him go. So much for the dilemma. The one thing that I, I really had to research on this, and it didn't stick out to me until when I first saw it, and I first saw this movie years ago, but it didn't stick out to me until I watched it again over the weekend, that there's this the chase scene where Nick Cage is in his car and he's driving through the Los Angeles waterway which if you've ever seen it, is just essentially this giant concrete river that has a small stream of water running in the middle of it. And it's meant for flooding and overflow of water to go into the ocean. You've seen it in a bunch of movies. A bunch of movies, like The Core, like Volcano, a bunch of movies. Those are movies we should talk about. Anyway, he's, he's driving through here and he's going as fast as he can and the cops are chasing him and there's this helicopter following. A police helicopter, mind you. And Nick Cage, he hits the nitrous on his car to go faster. Well, if you know anything about nitrous, it doesn't work like it does in the movies in real life. It's a short burst of acceleration, and then it's over. It's not, I'm going to go from 90 miles an hour to 180 miles an hour. It doesn't work that way. Unless you've got a fuck ton of it. And even then, the limits on gear ratios wouldn't let that transmission spin that fast without it coming apart. I had to look up the helicopter because I was like, a helicopter should fly faster than 150 miles an hour, right? Because there's an actual line in the movie where they, the helicopter pilot's seeing how fast he's going and the detectives in the car, the police car that are chasing Nick Cage are like, don't lose him, don't lose him. And Nick Cage gets away and the helicopter pilot's like, he was doing over 150, what do you, what do you want from me? It's, this is an A-star helicopter. So I had to look it up, like how fast does, fast does an A-star helicopter go? And it is about 150 miles an hour. They can be pushed faster, but not that much faster. Is it feasible that this GT500 can go 160 or 170 miles an hour? Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely feasible. And I wanted to rip this movie apart for just this, this scene altogether where a helicopter should catch a car but it's legit. So this movie was made for a budget about 100 million, which adjusted is $161 million. 
it made $237 million, or about $382 million in its run at the box office with, with adjusted numbers. So it was successful, not, not great, because generally movies, for it to be successful enough to warrant a sequel, it has to make its money back. So take its initial budget and double it just for advertising. It's got to hit that number and make money. So to get a sequel out of this, it had to hit like $500 million. And that's something I'll get more into when I do these original versus remakes is the money aspect of it and which one was more financially successful. Clearly, the original was more financially successful, making for its budget of less than a million dollars adjusted to $225 million way, way successful. But that was back in the time when they didn't just kick out sequel after sequel after sequel. And how do you make a sequel to this movie? Which brings me to The Fast and the Furious. I think this movie was the cause of that, for that franchise to get started. And this movie is still superior. I was, I was watching this over the weekend, over the holiday weekend, and I was thinking to myself, this movie is more Fast and Furious than Fast and the Furious franchise has been in a long time. As better cars, better chases, a better plot, and that's saying something. I don't know if it's just me, but I can appreciate Nick Cage overacting to Vin Diesel's not acting because he can't act. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just weird. And the movie is more family-oriented. And I know, that's the, that's the catch line of the Fast and Furious franchise right now is, Urgh, family. But this movie where a brother comes out of, goes back into a life of crime to save his little brother from death by committing crimes is more family-oriented for me than we got to go stop this bad guy because we're family. We stick together because we're family. That's fucking weird. That's just, that's just weird. I digress. So, what did I think of these? Which one did it better? Hard to say. Hard to say. For entertainment value, the remake succeeds far, 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 far better than the original. The original is a slog. It's a simple, simple plot, but it's a slog to get through because you don't care. You're not invested in these characters, which get little to no backstory. You're not invested in this deal because you didn't witness the deal being made or the stakes of the deal, other than I do this in five days and I get $400,000. Whereas you see the setup in the remake, the brothers in this, this car, he's handcuffed to the steering wheel. He's in the car crusher, which takes 80,000 pounds of force to crush a car. Fun fact, like, you know, Nick Cage can see his brother getting crushed in this car, and he he's compelled to act. Even against his own better judgment, he's compelled to act. The original is just set up as get cars, make money, let's go do. This has a urgency to it. The remake has an urgency where you have to do this, or not just your brother will die, but your entire family will die because Nick Cage was threatened with his entire family being murdered if he didn't do this job. And it was just to complete the business deal. Like, after the deal's done, hey, all, all is fair in love and war. We're good. Carry on, bro. But there's still the, I will kill your family if you don't do this for me. So he does it. 
there's more back and forth. There's more banter. There's a couple of standout characters. Angelina Jolie is not one of them. Yeah, she's in this movie. Yeah, she looks terrible. Her her blonde dreadlock, she looks fucking terrible. Someone needed to get that woman a couple of sandwiches. She looked terrible. And I am not sold on her being a good actress. More on that later, but I'm not, I'm not sold. No one else really stands out. There's a couple of actors in here, like Robert Duvall. I think that was his name. I think he was in this. That he's, he's just a classy actor when he appears. Timothy Oliphant is also in this, and he was one of the detectives. And I don't give that guy enough credit. He played um, Agent 47 in Hitman, and he was in Live Free and Die Hard, the fourth Die Hard movie. He was the main bad guy, and I really liked him in that. But he doesn't get enough credit as an actor because he's not really well known. And of course, Nick Cage is Nick Cage. Is Nick Cage is Nick Cage. So I give this one to the remake. Did a better job of holding my attention. Yeah, it cut some corners on like the chases, but it had more action overall. It had better cars and better plots for getting cars. Like stealing them from the police impound lot was bold as shit. Overall, to sit down and watch it, it's a far more enjoyable film. The original is good. That car chase at the end is epic, but one set piece. That's all that is, is a one set piece ordeal that lasts 40 minutes. Isn't enough, isn't enough to erase the rest of the stink of that film. The, the non-existent plot, the terrible time period, the crap clothing, the obvious betrayal, the it, it's all bland and dull and boring. And it doesn't appeal to someone like me who wasn't born in that era and could appreciate those cars beyond being antiques. More modern movie, more modern cars. Even the, the Mustang, even Eleanor, 1967 Shelby, is, yeah, that's antique to me because I'm a fucking 80s kid. But it's a car that I have seen on in my games or in real life and I go that is a beautiful beautiful car this 1973 Mustang I wouldn't recognize that unless someone pointed it out that's the car from Gone in 60 Seconds and I would have said no that's not a Shelby Mustang maybe it's an age thing and maybe when Jeff listens to this he can tell me is that an age thing but I don't know if he's seen both of the movies remake did it better did the action better? Did the plot better? Did the cars better? Did modernized a, a classic era movie to something that is probably more digestible, even for those that are fans of the original. And that's going to be about all she wrote. That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of Elise, Jeff, and myself, we thank you for your love and continued support. If you want to support us further or chime in on the discussion you can find us at facebook at talk is cheap that's why we have a podcast or on instagram at talking underscore cheap be sure to tell your friends like our content and share it the best way we know how to do our job is for you guys to tell us what works and what doesn't anyways love you all appreciate all your support and we will talk to you again soon